Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the MBIT Podcast. I'm your host, Seamus Medan, and today, Jesse Randall joins to discuss his firm. Can we call it a firm, Jesse? Uh, yeah, call it whatever you want. So his firm, Sweater VC, which lowers the barrier to entry for those interested in investing in private markets, but are not accredited investors. So first off, quick disclaimer, the podcast is not financial or investment advice. It is meant for informational purposes only. So for a little bit of quick background, to start angel investing traditionally, you have to be an accredited investor. And to do so, you need a million dollars in net worth and an income of a couple hundred thousand dollars per year. That already signals out a large portion of the population. But at Sweater, you're working to make private investing available to all. So let's take a step back to your background and how you got involved over at Sweater. Yeah, for sure. So I've been working at professionally in venture and the startup ecosystem broadly for about the last 10 years. I came out of my MBA program and started working at an accelerator, which I ended up leading. They raised a small venture fund while I was there. And it was a great experience, very foundational. I worked with a couple hundred companies, mostly technology companies, and inside that context, helping them do absolutely everything that you, that you have to get done to get off the ground. And uh, I left there right as they actually launched the venture fund. And, and it was interesting because that venture fund, the way that they got it, had it set up, it, they kind of ended up tying their shoelaces together in a way. So when they came out the gates, they were kind of tripped all over themselves and didn't end up being as effective as a fund for the region that, that we were in as they were envisioning. And I saw that quasi failure kind of happen. And I thought, you know what, I could build a venture fund. So I started going through this process of looking for an anchor LP to come in and maybe build this thing around. And it became immediately apparent that I wouldn't be able to invest in my own VC fund because I was not an accredited investor. And I thought that was absurd. I was like, wait a minute, I'm the guy running the fund. How could I not put money in my own fund? (laughs) And I was mostly curious. Part of my graduate work, in addition to my MBA, was in policy. And so I wanted to dig in and understand the rules behind accreditation. And I dug in and I really didn't like what I found. The justification for it comes from the 1930s and 1940s timeframe. And it basically says, if you're not wealthy, then you're probably not smart enough to understand this really complicated stuff and we need to protect you. And it was just incredibly condescending to me. And I was like, look, if I fall into that category and all of these friends and family that I have who are very smart fall into that category, then this is archaic. And I want to protect widows and orphans with the best of them, right? And there should be protections in place. But this type of rationale is no longer current. And that lit a fire under me and I wanted to do something different. So I dropped the idea of raising a traditional VC fund and started pursuing this. And it only took four years, but after four years, we got the approved designation from the SEC. And now we're fully operational and online for anyone to invest in our fund. And for the listeners, what's the process behind Sweater and how it works on the consumer? Let's talk about Uh, the investing portion. To make an investment, it's super easy. You go download the Sweater app from your respective app store. You go in, create an account. We have high security measures to make sure we know and understand who you are. And then we go through a number of educational components to make sure that what you're investing into, that's really important to us, that we pull out the small print and put it front and center and make sure that you understand the industry, the nature of the long-term nature of the investment, redemption windows and other things that are important to this type of fund structure. And then you can pick an amount that you want to invest. You can pick an upfront amount to start your account with, and you can also select a monthly recurring investment if that's the workflow that you have in your life or your investment life. And then we use Plaid and Stripe and other leading fintech partners to actually connect to your bank account. You can move that money over and then you get a copy of the prospectus, make sure you understand that you should only invest what you can afford to lose. And then you can finalize your investment. But if you're quick about it, you could probably get through it in five minutes. If you watch every video and read everything, it might take you 15 or 20 minutes. 
And with the traditional VC firm, you're limited to the amount of LPs you can have. And there are a whole bunch of other restrictions in a traditional VC firm that doesn't allow non-accredited investors to just start pouring money into it. How did you get around those regulations with the SEC? There's a little bit of context there if you'd like to hear the full story. Yeah, let's start with the full story. Yeah, yeah. It's important to understand the context of where accreditation laws came from. They stem from two different laws that are very joined at the hip as a 1933 Securities Act and the 1940 Investment Company Act. And those were both put in place and enacted after the Great Depression and all the volatility and everything that went down during that time frame. And it made all the sense in the world, right? Lots of regular people got screwed because there wasn't regulation, there weren't guidelines or anything, right? And so they put these in place to protect widows and orphans was the underlying premise there. It was the 1930s, right? There wasn't good access to information. The population in general was far less educated. It was very easy to be swindled. It was harder to track people. It was like all the things, right? So there was good purpose for it at the time. But think of it like a giant umbrella. And when those laws were put in place, it touched every financial instrument for accredited, qualified investors. Every type of investment mechanism was underneath this umbrella. And what ended up happening was over the course of time, companies would come to the SEC and say, hey, we want to create an investment vehicle for this very specific purpose. And we need to have it operate like this. Can you give us some exemptions here and do this and craft it in this certain way? And they would work with the SEC to get to a place where it would work. And then after that product became like an off the shelf thing that anyone could walk into the SEC and say, hey, I want to create a REIT. Hey, I want to create a hedge fund, right? Or I want to create a mutual fund. Like all of these are prepackaged products that have very specific operational and regulatory requirements that sit underneath the umbrella. So venture capital was one of those. It was born in the 70s and it was created by these men and women that had funded the very beginnings of Silicon Valley. When you're looking at like Intel and Hewlett Packard and some of these companies that came out of the 1960s, that those were funded originally by super angels. There weren't VC funds. And so over the course of that decade, when they made all this money, they got to know each other and they said, hey, we should pool our money together and we could be even more powerful and have even more impact in terms of investing in more of these groundbreaking companies. So they went to go pool their money and then they were confronted with this 1940 Investment Act and 1933 Securities Act umbrella. And they're like, holy cow, Like this is onerous. There's so much oversight and so much auditing. and This is terrible. I'd rather invest my money directly by myself. But they knew how powerful it could be if they could pool their money. So they went to the SEC and they said, hey, why don't you cut us some slack? We can afford to lose our own money. Like We should have less regulatory oversight. And in the process of that, the SEC said, oh, we get what you're doing here. We see the impact of it. We'll create this vehicle for you and we'll provide you with less scrutiny and oversight. But in exchange, you can only take money from accredited and qualified investors and you can only you have 99 investors in a fund. And that's how venture capital was born from a regulatory perspective. Fast forward to today, when we started looking at it, and you're confronted with this prepackaged legal framework to create a VC fund. And it's carbon copy. Every VC fund out there uses the same Reg D offering set, and they all have the same constraints. And we poked around at it and we're like, there's got to be a loophole. There's got to be something. And there's just not, right? And you shouldn't build a business on a loophole anyways. We also looked at regulation crowdfunding and equity crowdfunding and say, is there something with Reg CF or Reg A plus that we could do? And there's very specific provisions that say you cannot pool money for investment purposes. That's you have to put money directly into a company, an operating company. And so there was nothing really there. So what we discovered when we like learned about this umbrella and we learned about all these prepackaged things was basically our question became, is there another one of these investment vehicles? prepackaged vehicles that we could latch onto that already allows us to take money from retail investors, but that we invest in the same assets as a VC fund. 
And that's how we got to that answer eventually. So the irony here is that with this structure that we're using is that we're actually not getting around anything because we're dealing with this umbrella in its entirety as a registered investment company or a public investment company. And because of that, we're actually held to a higher regulatory and oversight and auditing standard than a traditional VC fund is. So the great irony is that VC funds are the ones actually getting around having to take money from retail investors and subsequently be held to a higher regulatory standard. So that's kind of the funny thing is that we're not getting around anything. We're just dealing with the law in more of its pure format. Gotcha. And earlier in that response, you mentioned how back in the day, there was a limited amount of information decades ago, but now there's a lot more content, but venture capital is still a very closed off space, even though we're starting to see it that open up a little bit with what you're doing over at Sweater and some other stuff. But do you plan on offering some more educational content? So for example, E-Trade offers some educational content for public market investors. Do you plan on offering educational content for those who are non-accredited investors to invest in the private market? Oh, definitely. And it's actually one of our biggest objectives internally. We have a whole internal branch inside Sweater that we call Sweater Media. And their whole purpose is to create content and update on the portfolios and all that kind of stuff. We've already got maybe 15 or 20 professional grade videos that are in the app that you can access when you're going through it to become more comfortable with the venture capital asset class. And we're going to create a lot more. So we're actually, we've got a list of about a hundred different terms and concepts from the venture ecosystem and the venture world that we're going to be creating individual pieces of media for. And that will be written content. It will be visual content that people can access in whatever format they want. We're going to be covering a lot of this stuff in podcast formats and all kinds of other things so that people can start to gain the context and the confidence in the asset class itself. So we call it Venture 101. And yeah, we're definitely heavily investing in that. And then to access people who are not yet involved in private markets, what's your distribution strategy to get to those people? Oh, yeah, this is where it's fun, right? I think it's good to understand the traditional context. As a traditional VC, you're pitching to accredited investors and qualified investors are much bigger check writers, right? So they're endowments and entities like that or specific funds that invest in other funds. And they're usually writing bigger checks, 5 million to hundreds of millions of dollars. Accredited investors, of course, like you mentioned earlier, have to make a few hundred thousand dollars a year or have a million dollars in net assets outside the value of their primary residence. And they're usually writing much smaller checks, right? This is the interesting thing. The majority of actual accredited investors can't put money into VC funds either because they can't write big enough checks. The typical check requirement for a decent size, even a small VC fund is usually a quarter million or half a million dollars because of the 99 investor limit. And so this is where it just, it starts to get interesting. And the traditional VC takes 18 to 24 months, usually under normal circumstances. The last couple of years have been a little wild, but under normal circumstances, it takes 18 to 24 months to raise a venture fund. You're trying to line up and herd 99 or fewer investors into the fund. And it takes a lot of effort to make that happen. It's usually very relationship-based And you're networking your way in through gatekeepers and others to get to the people that have the money to be able to cut you a quarter million or a $5 million or a $100 million check into your fund. And it takes a long time and it's very relationship oriented. So for Sweater, with people putting in $2,500 checks, we can't go door to door and talk to people, right? So our objective is actually go direct to consumer much in the same way that a Coinbase or a Robinhood or Wealthfront is going direct to consumer. And so like we're held to very strict regulatory standards, what we can say, and what we can't say, the channels that we use and incentives that we provide or cannot provide better said across all these different channels. But We are very keen on marketing. We love marketing. We have a very strong marketing philosophy and how we present this information with clarity to people and help them to understand that this is something if they don't already know that they're locked out, 
We help them to understand why the asset class is so powerful and how it can be a good part of their portfolio and help them to believe in the asset. And then eventually come to know that they should believe in Sweater as, as a partner to be able to access it. That's a great point. And you have a couple of different funds at Sweater. Could you talk, touch a little bit more about what those funds and each of them and what they do? Right now, we just have one. So it's the Sweater Cashmere Fund, and it's open to anyone. We can take checks from $500 up to millions of dollars. And the purpose of it is to invest in private venture backable companies. So we can invest through a few different levels, but the way that we think about it is the first filter is it venture qualified, or basically does it have the DNA to actually be really big? We're not going to invest in a brewery or a one-off product company, right? Like we have to invest in companies that have potential for huge growth. After that, we have a filter that's really a thesis filter that we call consumer touching. And that basically means it's any type of product or service or experience that our retail consumer base might encounter in their regular life either at home or at work. And so that could be direct consumer physical products. It could be digital experiences and marketplaces and things that you access through your phone or through the internet. But it could also be things that you use it at work and accessing back when uh, Slack was private, right? Or looking at something like Zoom, right? That when it was private, looking at tools like that, that are commonplace and where you as a consumer have a direct interaction with them in a business setting, all of that is, is relevant. And then there's elements of how we look at what we invest in, but the primary you know, or what stages and different circumstances we should invest in, I should say. But primarily, like we have this single fund today with the ambition that we are going to launch more funds in the near future that are themed around other types of topics. So we might have just a late stage fund. We might have just an impact fund, just a climate tech fund, just an international fund. And then as a member, when you come in, you can allocate your dollars to the funds that you believe in the most. And then for any of the listeners in the audience who might be wanting to learn a little bit more about Sweater, why should they trust your team in investing their capital into private companies? That's yeah, something that we take very seriously. I mean, we talk internally all the time that ultimately what we're selling is trust. People need to trust that if they provide us with their hard-earned dollars, that we're going to put them to work in an appropriate way for this industry and that we're going to find amazing companies that will provide the types of returns that reflect the risk that all of us are taking by participating in this asset class. And we take that super seriously. So we have a team of, I think we're at seven or eight people that are full-time on the deal team. And all we do all day long is we have intake from founders that we either introduce to or that find us. And we go through a diligence process to get to know them and make sure that they meet all these criteria. And we're effectively in a constant process of stack ranking these companies against each other and filtering down to those that have the highest potential and have the best mix of stage and, and vertical, given the exposure that we have in the rest of our portfolio and actually execute those deals and then take care of them after the fact, right? So we feel we have a world-class team. We've got a lot of entrepreneurial experience around the table from those that have raised a lot of money before. We have investors that have come from world-class venture funds that are here with us as well. And we deploy what we believe are our best practices to make sure that we find amazing companies. I totally agree. I believe trust is a pretty big factor in the private markets. One of the things I've noticed, even when companies send update emails to the investors or to the venture capital firms, that's more transparency and that all builds that relationship of trust. And overall, trust is pretty important in that space. And then what we're talking about liquidity in private markets, there's generally a lot less liquidity than there would be in public markets. So in public markets, you can buy and sell from nine to five every day, weekly, except for the holidays. However, in private, it generally could take years, if not longer, to receive a return on the investment if there's a return. How does the liquidity at sweater compared to that of a regular private market? 
So this is one of the amazing things. And you're absolutely right. I mean, private companies, there are some reasons that it's difficult to invest in a private company. And the main reason that the SEC has made it difficult is because of liquidity. And when we approached them initially, this was God, it's been almost two years ago now. We were actually a little bit surprised because we thought that their number one factor or consideration in this was risk. This is a risky asset class and people could lose their money. Therefore, they shouldn't be investing in the asset. But their number one requirement was actually liquidity. They were concerned about people having their money locked up for long periods of time. And so how do we solve that problem? And that alignment with the SEC around liquidity is actually what led us to the, the fund structure that we have today and the subsequent operational requirements that we have as a fund that are different than traditional VC funds. So yeah, in a typical VC fund, for full context, you make a commitment into the fund. They have about a three-year window usually to actually deploy all that money into private companies. And then as a member of the fund, you're basically waiting between 12 and 15 years for that portfolio and funds to fully mature. So if there's an outcome for every single one of those, say 30 companies they invested in, you're going to be uh, have an exposure window of 12 to 15 years before all of those have played out completely. And you'll get payouts along the way. It's not like you're waiting to get every dollar back at the end. As companies have exit events, you get those payouts as you go along, but you're probably not getting anything for probably five years or more. There might be an, an, a quick early pop that happens in year two or three, but that's the exception and definitely not the rule. And so that's a reality, right? You're signing up for, say, a 15-year window, and you're going to get micro payouts along the way as that end up covering your original principal and hopefully plus plus that provides you with venture grade returns. So for sweater, it's different with this fund structure that we're using. It actually allows us to open up redemption windows. There's a concept called net asset value or NAV that a lot of people are probably exposed to like in an ETF or in a mutual fund where the value of the underlying assets in the fund are valued either on a daily or a weekly or a monthly basis. And it's reflected in this value that feels like a stock price. It's called net asset value or NAV. So when you buy in, you're actually buying shares in the fund itself at that NAV price. And when you put your money in, that company or the fund, including us, we take that and we go and invest it in companies and assets. And then we track the value of those assets. And when they go up or down, that NAV price goes up and down, much like a stock price, except it's not driven by supply and demand of buying and selling of it. Right, It's only driven by the underlying value of the assets. But what that allows us to do is actually open up redemption windows where effectively people coming into the fund can buy the position of someone that wants to leave the fund, which is totally unheard of in the venture world. I mean, if you're in a traditional VC fund and you have a big life event that happens, you get a divorce or something, and you want to actually get out of the fund, you could sell it to someone else, but you're going to sell it at a 40% discount in order to get out. You're totally going to get hosed. Where in our context, we are required by law to offer it at whatever the NAV is, which is a, an immediate reflection of the value of the portfolio at that moment in time. So it's not liquid in the fact that you could do it every day, right? You can buy into the sweater cashmere fund any day. We open up these redemption windows once every six months. So we open that up. We give everyone plenty of notice. You can analyze where you're at and you can make a request for redemption at whatever you want. It could be 1%. It could be 100% of your position. And then we aggregate all of the requests together. And there's a protective provision that we will redeem up to 5% of the value of the fund in any given window. So if the total aggregate requests are less than 5%, everyone gets whatever they asked for. If it goes above that, then you get pro rata of whatever you asked for. And you can come back on the next window if you want to pull some money out again. But again, it's it's absolutely unheard of in the venture space yeah. to be able to access your money at the value of the portfolio. So 
Yeah, and you made a great point. In speaking of, I was going to make one quick question here, but there's a couple of different ways to value a portfolio. How do you value your portfolio over at Sweater? Yeah, so there are a few different ways we do that. In the venture world, private companies are valued basically tied back to the last valuation that was placed by the institutional investor that set the price of a round. So like in a seed round, it may be common to have a $10 million post-money valuation, which is the value of the company at the end of the investment after the money has actually been relayed. And they include that cash in the value of the company. So in a successful scenario, over the course, say 18 months after, that company may go out and raise a Series A round, and they may be worth $50 million post-money. So you went from being worth $10 million to being worth $50 million. And we would take that as a markup to that $50 million marker, plus dilution and a bunch of other factors that play their way into our holding in the company. But that would reflect itself in our context in the portfolio of, say, 30 companies that we have ownership in. This one went from being worth $10 million to $50 million, which is a 5x increase just for simplicity. So our holding would go from being worth whatever, $500,000 to being worth $2.5 It's weighted against all the other assets in the portfolio. And then it's reflected in the NAV and the NAV would go from whatever, $22 to $23.50, right? And that's how it would happen over time. And of course, there's also the downside of that, that if a company has a write down or a down round or the company fails, then you also go the other direction. And over the course of a decade, right, you're going to have, just like any other venture fund, you're going to have half the companies that basically go to zero. You're going to have 25 or 30% that return a 2x to 3x return profile. And they're going to have a very small percentage that can return 10x, 50x, or whatever else that typically returns all of the losses that happened from those that didn't make it. And all of that's reflected over the course of these institutional price points. And that's the big stuff, right? Like you have these anchor points, but we do have discretion as well in between those anchor points to take into account things that are happening in the company to also make micro changes if something is happening. And a good example would be like WeWork, right? When they were valued at 48 billion, they said they were going to go public at 65 billion. Everything falls apart. And it's very public. Everyone knows that they're not worth, they're not going to go public for 65. They're definitely not worth 48 anymore. No one knows what they're worth, but we would have the discretion to say, you know what, we're taking it from 48 million down to 30 million today. And two weeks later, we could say, you know what, we're taking it down to 20. And then they raise their down round eventually at eight. And then now we have a new institutional price point. And so we have the discretion to make those calls, but that is very close overseen. We have an audit that takes place every single year that audits every single portfolio company holding and value and how we got to those values. And we're held very tightly accountable to that. Gotcha. And how Sweater currently works is it pulls together a bunch of small investments of capital. How is this different than equity crowdfunding platforms like Republic? And then if Republic did enable the option to do something like what you're doing now, how would that affect your business? Yeah. So equity crowdfunding is awesome, first of all. I mean, the history behind getting that in place into law is long, and it's very interesting to see what took place to make it possible. The ideas were introduced back between the 2005 and 2009 timeframe. Between 2009 and 2012, it was actually turned into law and it was included in the Jobs Act in 2012. And then they took about four years after that to actually hand that law to the SEC and say, now write rules around this for how it's actually going to work. And it was launched in 2016. And so that's where you get the other uh, republics and all the others, the WeFunders and whatnot that were created as platforms 
underneath those rules to actually allow for equity crowdfunding. So equity crowdfunding, if listeners aren't as familiar, it's a platform where as a company, you can go and register and say, hey, I want to raise a quarter million dollars. And you have to go through a little audit process with the SEC and have things ready. And you have to disclose different topics of information. That's kind of like a Kickstarter page, but it's for equity instead of for pre-purchasing a product. And then you as a consumers can all go into say Republic and find my company and say, Hey, I want to put in 500 bucks. And then you get to participate directly with that company. And it's great. It's helped all kinds of companies that find themselves in this gap that they don't really qualify for bank loans and things like that, but they're also not necessarily qualified to go and raise venture money because they don't quite have the right DNA for that. And it's this whole middle ground of these companies that are out there. So first of all, it's we love equity crowdfunding. It's a great market. It's helped tens of thousands of companies raise money that wouldn't have been able to access capital in the first place. But there are a lot of key differences. The biggest one is that as a consumer, these platforms are not a fund, right? So you have to do all the work yourself as a consumer. So you have to go through and search through all the companies that are listed. You have to do your own due diligence. You have to determine whether or not they're the right return profile. And then on top of that, at least if you're smart, you need to make probably 25 or 30 investments to create your own mini portfolio to offset the risk of failure. Because if you only make five investments, it's a super high probability that all of them go to zero. And that's really bad for you, right? So you have to do a lot of legwork to make it work there. And I'd say that the biggest, hairiest difference is that most companies listed on equity crowdfunding platforms don't qualify to raise venture capital money. That's one of the reasons that they're on those platforms. And by no means is it all of them. There are venture backable companies that do list sometimes, but you can't tell the difference for the most part, right? It's very difficult. For us with Sweater, right? We're in the VC category. We only invest in venture-backable companies and we invest alongside other VC funds and we are a fund. So you put your money in and then we take care of everything. We take care of finding professional grade deals and we're not precluded to only those listed on a platform. We can list, we, we can invest in any company that we feel is qualified. We conduct professional grade due diligence. We build a portfolio, not just of dozens of companies, but eventually hundreds of companies to diversify your risk. And then we are taking care of those companies after the fact. And we're reporting all those stories back through the app so that you feel like you have courtside seats to the process and you don't have to do anything. So those are the biggest differences that, that we feel like for sure. Yeah, I think you brought up an excellent point, especially your point on risk. Experienced, accredited angel investors, 57% of their investments actually result in a loss of capital. So it's very risky to start investing in individual companies. And then it's probably even a higher percentage when you're talking about crowdfunding, because those companies don't even have the ability or it's harder for them to raise traditional VC money. But to wrap it up here, what are your takeaways for the audience and where people can learn more about Sweater Ventures and then how you're breaking the barrier to entry in the private markets? Yeah, this is something I love talking about because our objective is not to like disrupt venture capital or anything like that. I mean, all that we want to do is just tear down the walls surrounding venture capital. We just want everyone to have a seat at the table. So we're very friendly inside the VC world. We've got handshakes with, I think we're at 37 or 38 VCs that we're sharing deal flow opportunities with and co-investing alongside. And we want to continue to grow that network of really high quality partners that are already in the ecosystem. And we want to be able to share in the synergy of helping founders make their dreams actually become reality. And so we're very collaborative from that sense. 
But, you know, for those that want to learn more about us, it's really easy now. Starting a week ago, we're now publicly available for anyone. So you just go to the app store, you can search sweater, download the sweater app. You can go through an investment workflow and actually invest right from the get-go, or you can skip and go to the dashboard and you can access all our VC 101 content and get to know us as a company, get to know the, v- the actual venture asset class and get comfortable with who we are and take as much time as you want. So we try to make it a combination of educational and entertaining and provide you with a view into the venture world that most people don't realize that they were locked out of it in the first place, right? So we have this fun game of like informing people that they've been locked out of this very illustrious asset class. And then also at the same time telling them that now you can, right? And so it's a fun somersault to see people go through and say, you know what, I do want to be able to help shape the future. It is my right to be able to participate in this upper end of the economic life cycle of companies and to be able to access companies before they're publicly available in public markets, which is a very small percentage of companies that actually end up there. Yeah, what you're working on over at Sweater is super neat. I'm all for companies and I have them on the podcast that are either solving big problems or making processes frictionless or breaking barriers to entry because all of those are potentials for huge successes down the line if they can get the steps right along the way. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode of the Ambit Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to drop a five-star review down below. And thank you, Jesse, for taking the time to hop on the podcast today. It was a pleasure. No, pleasure's all mine. Thanks, James. Appreciate it. If you're curious to learn more about the journey towards becoming a listed company, tune into the 14th episode of Water X Future, which aired just the other day on June 29th, where the Danish water technology company Aquaporin celebrates their first year as a listed company by giving you a fascinating and personal insight into their listing. The many years of hard work ahead of ringing the bell on the big day and the wins and challenges during their first year as a company listed on the NASDAQ. Find Water X Future in your preferred podcast app. They're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts.